Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. With Joe Biden declared the victor of the presidential race and now the president-elect, let's return to the Biden plan and ask the question that you are all asking, now what? Well, as we've discussed, so much of that question comes down to those two Georgia Senate runoff races on January 5th. If Republicans win one of the two, they maintain control of the Senate, and most, maybe all, of the Biden tax plan remains mostly in the theoretical. If Democrats can win both of those Georgia Senate seats, then they will have control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. This would make 2021 all about whether or not, with the slimmest of margins, Democrats could find a way to move the ambitious Biden tax plan. Now, way back in June, we did an episode on one way that could happen in a narrowly divided Senate. That is, they could repeal the filibuster. This would make it possible to move tax legislation with Democrat-only votes in the Senate. But this avenue took a hit last week when Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia said he would not cast a vote in favor of repealing the filibuster. Assuming this is true, and it remains true, then Democrats likely have only one other option for moving tax legislation without also getting 10 Republicans to support the bill. That is the procedure of budget reconciliation. For those of you who lived through the 2017 tax law and that effort that ultimately became the TCJA, you recall that we all took a crash course in the rules of budget reconciliation then. But boy, are they arcane. But they matter, and they matter a lot. Those rules shape how likely, how soon, and how much of the Biden tax plan could become law. So today, let's revisit that topic, budget reconciliation. To do so, I am joined by our friends, Jen Acuna and Tom Stout. Hey, Jen, during the TCJA, you were up there. You were in the halls of the Senate working, trying to get that done. So let me just start with you. Can you remind us what is budget reconciliation and why it matters in this context? Sure. And yes, I was in the halls running away from reconciliation. Just kidding. Now, reconciliation is a really interesting tool. I mean, it's been used by every administration over the last few decades to pass big pieces of tax legislation. And what makes it unique is that while Senate rules generally allow virtually unlimited debate and a number of obstacles to pass general legislation, which is the filibuster rule, Reconciliation bills can be passed relatively quickly once there's a reconciliation instruction and with a simple majority. So that's why it has been utilized so frequently for, in particular, tax legislation. So let's see if I got this right. The rules of the Senate is we need a super majority of 60 senators to pass legislation. And let's use budget reconciliation, in which case it's only 51. Kind of sounds like a big loophole. So it can't be as good as it sounds. Tom. Are there any limitations in the application of how reconciliation works? It can't be as good as all that, is it? No, there are a lot of them. A couple of the big ones arise out of the purpose of budget reconciliation. This rule goes back to the Budget Act of 1974, and the purpose of it was supposed to be to ease the ability of Congress to pass legislation to reduce the deficits and reduce debt. And so there are some rules that arise directly out of that purpose. First is something that's called the Byrd Rule, after former Senator Byrd, who introduced the provision. And that is that every provision in a budget reconciliation bill has to affect either spending or revenue in a significant way. And the purpose of that is to keep it from being used as a means to to actually get around the Senate filibuster rules and, and enact policy. 
And we, we saw that with the TCJA as the Democrats were trying to slow its passage through the Senate. They objected to the title of, of the TCJA because that didn't affect spending or revenue and, and slowed things down for a little while. And more significantly, we saw it with the Affordable Care Act, where after the original bill was passed, the Democrats lost their 60-vote supermajority in the Senate and had to resort to a budget reconciliation in order to make some changes. But they couldn't make all the changes they wanted to make. They could only make the ones that directly affected revenue. So that's the Bird Rule. The second provision, and one we're still living with now with the TCJA, is that, again, getting back to the purpose, no title of a budget reconciliation bill can increase the deficit outside of the 10-year budget window that Congress uses. And that's the reason why, because we're going to have under the TCJA a permanent corporate tax cut, everything else has to balance out. So we have a lot of expirations of provisions and phase-ins and things. Also, that outside of that 10-year budget window, we're not increasing the deficit. And then there are a number of minor provisions, uh, limitations in the budget reconciliation, like you can't touch Social Security, which might limit the ability to do some of the things that Biden would propose to do in that area. And there can only be one revenue bill, one spending bill per year, which means you have to put everything in at once. Uh, You don't have the ability to, to sort of space it out and do it piecemeal. That's a lot of things. It's not nearly as much fun as it originally sounded like. So if I've got this right, first of all, everything must have a real budgetary impact. It can't just be an incidental impact. So therefore, not allowing you to do non-budgetary things under budgetary reconciliation. You've got other things you know, that require you to not have a budgetary effect outside the 10-year window in a way that adds to the deficit. You can only do one of these a year. So it really is pretty significant straightjack, and I guess is one of the reasons why it's not the ideal situation. And if Democrats could have, uh, and maybe still can, repeal the filibuster, it would be in many ways so much easier. So, Jen, let me just come back to you. Tom sort of outlined some of these things, but get really specific with us. The TCJA looks the way it does in a lot of ways, right because of some of these budget reconciliation limitations we just talked about. Give us some examples of what some of those are. So, I mean, the biggest one was that the reconciliation instruction provided for no more than a $1.5 trillion deficit over the 10-year window. And that, as Tom said, that means in a reconciliation context, that means not a penny of deficit spending moving outside that 10-year window. So that was the biggest one. And that really did shape the bill because all eyes were on those last three years of the 10-year window to make sure that there weren't any after effects or budgetary effects that extended beyond the 10 years. And as Tom mentioned, that's why the individual tax title expires at the end of that window in order to make sure that that deficit did not move beyond the 10-year window. That's also why there were um, numerous increases in revenue raisers towards the end of that budgetary window. And, you know, some that come to mind are the 163J provision that moves us, the interest limitation that moves us from an EBITDA to an EBIT standard. That kicks in in 2022. R&E amortization kicked in in 2022 as well. That's um, research and expenditures. That kicks in in 2022. Those two combined raised a significant amount of revenue in order to carry the bill through that 10-year window. Another revenue raiser that had to kick in was the phasing down of 100% expensing. That kicks in in 2023. And in 2026 is the blockbuster year. As I mentioned, the individual title expires and those international rates, the guilty, FDII, and beat rates all go up. 
And that was all to hit that $1.5 trillion and to make sure that there was no deficit spending outside of that 10-year window for the purposes of reconciliation. And, you know, this is a high-stakes game. You go a penny over budget and the whole thing explodes. Then it does not get the benefit of a simple majority vote pursuant to the reconciliation rules in the Senate. Except that. If now, let's just say you, some of those revenue raisers you mentioned, let's take 174 as our example. If now we say, that was a terrible idea, we're just going to get rid of that provision altogether. We don't retroactively say that the TCJA failed the standard of budget reconciliation. We're okay, right? Like, So they could do that now. It's just you can't do it inside the bill itself, right? That is right. That is in order for that particular piece of legislation to pass with the simple majority rule. It doesn't tag the legislation in perpetuity, right, if it had an additional impact on the budget. So it's just kind of a one and done. And that's why a lot of these things expire. And the thought process there is, you know, they'll expire, but future legislation and future Congresses can choose to take up those measures and extend them or destruct them altogether. Interesting. So, okay, that was fascinating. A little stroll down memory lane with the TCJA. Let's bring it back to today. So then, Tom, those limitations that you talked about and some of the examples that Jen gave, let's just talk about what does this mean in a very practical sense for a very narrowly divided, democratically controlled Senate where the most they can get are 50 votes? What does that mean for them in trying to move a Biden tax plan, assuming that they're going to have to use budget reconciliation? Well, a lot. It has been used in the past, as, as Jim points out, for a lot of legislation. So it's a way forward for the Democrats if they only have 50 votes in the Senate and they don't have the votes or don't want to uh, eliminate the filibuster. It's even a little easier for them than it was for Jen when she was up there uh, working on the TCJA because most of the Biden plan is around tax increases, not tax cuts. And with a tax increase, you don't have to worry about that 10-year budget window and increasing the deficit outside of it. So you can actually enact permanent changes through budget reconciliation, again, assuming you can you know, hold all 50 votes in your caucus together. So it, it really is a way forward, potentially, for the Democrats. Well, the thing I would say to that, though, is sure, you know, the Biden plan with lots of tax increases that raise revenue. And as you correctly point out, it makes it easier under budget reconciliation because you're not increasing the deficit outside the window. But that's not all they're going to do in a bill, right? Those tax increases are going to pay for other stuff, maybe tax cuts elsewhere, maybe spending elsewhere. So I don't know. The way I look at it is they're going to have that same balancing act where they're going to have to make sure that any of these provisions are either offset in the second decade, the spending or the other tax cuts, or they're going to have to expire, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're stuck with. It's not as if the Democrats are just going to put a straight tax increase bill through, but it's a fair point that maybe they can figure out a way because they sort of have all these tax increases bundled up in the Biden plan that they can get through and put it out. I'll just point out, though, that, you know, some revenue estimates of the Biden plan show that it's a $4 trillion tax increase in totality, which happens to be the exact amount of the tax increases that the Republicans used in the TCJA. They just also had $5.5 trillion of tax cuts associated with it. All right. So, Jen, based on what Tom said earlier about you only get one of these a year, right, that means there's only one shot at a tax reconciliation bill in 2021. Am I understanding that right or do I have that wrong? Well, you know, the reconciliation instructions run on a fiscal year basis. And we've talked about this before. Back in 2017, if we'll all recall what seems like a decade ago, just a few years ago, The first reconciliation instruction that was passed by Congress in January was for the ACA. And as we all remember, the ACA repeal and replace effort through reconciliation, it blew up on the Senate floor. 
So that reconciliation instruction went away, as did the um, repeal and replace effort. And for the following fiscal year, still in the 2017 calendar year, there was a new reconciliation instruction passed, and that was used as the vehicle for the TCJA. So depending on how the timing works out, there's a possibility that it could potentially have two reconciliation bills in one calendar year. I mean, we just saw it happen in 2017. Thank you for that reminder. So if we played that in the next year, that's right. Okay, so in January, Democrats, if they control the Senate, could work with the democratically controlled House, pass an FY21 budget, and then have that reconciliation bill, and then after September 30th, pass their FY22 budget and have another reconciliation bill. So we could theoretically get two bites at the apple in the calendar year of 21, where we would get two tax bills. And that's an important thing, I think, for people to remember. We say that, well, reconciliation, maybe they'll only get one, but they theoretically could get two. Okay. Well, that was a really useful just primer and reminder on how reconciliation works. And I guess that's all we have time for today. You know, earlier in this episode, I said that budget reconciliation was, aside from ending the filibuster, really the only other realistic way for a democratically controlled Senate to move tax legislation without otherwise getting 10 Republicans to agree. And we moved past that option, the bipartisan option, pretty quickly. And I guess that's just a sign of our times, one where bipartisanship on big and complicated issues seems so unlikely that we barely slow down to notice it as we drive past. And I'm not really sure how we got to this point. There's certainly no shortage of theories, though, and there is, as there usually is, probably plenty of blame to go around. But let's leave that for others to debate. Let's just come back to this notion of bipartisanship, forlorn as that might be. And it brings me back to something that happened last week. I was speaking to a reporter for a national newspaper about what 2021 might hold for taxes in a divided Congress. And he quoted me as follows, quote, we have to lower the ceiling of expectations in that scenario for Mr. Biden's agenda. We're looking at more modest, more bipartisan stuff. And to be honest, maybe that's not the worst thing, unquote. And as I read that quote, I felt pretty good about what I said. That is until I read further and the reporter proceeded to more or less illustrate me as a shill for corporate America that somehow I was dancing in the streets at the prospects of congressional gridlock. So let me conclude with this. If being in favor of moderate change, in favor of bipartisanship, and therefore in favor of sustainable tax policy is a crime, well, then come lock me up. Because if I'm a shill for anything, It's for a predictable and a stable tax system. And a constant cycle of doing and then undoing our tax law really, in the end, helps no one. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. We're off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. And though the circumstances are difficult this year, I hope you get a moment next week to reflect on the things you are thankful for. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.